This morning, we are continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, in a message I've entitled, The Doctor is in the House. The Doctor is in the House. Aren't you glad Jesus still makes house calls? He still comes to the brokenhearted. He still comes to those who think they've got it all put together and helps them see that they don't and cleanses them and redeems them and enlists them in a mission that uh, goes on into eternity. Uh, this morning in Mark chapter 2, y'all are in trouble because I'm, I'm excited about this text and uh, y'all just need to hang on, okay? So Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 18, hear now the word. Of God. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi. We're pretty sure that's also Matthew, because the accounts of the calling of Levi and Matthew in the Gospels are so similar. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this... Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you pray with me? God, help us to identify with Jesus and His mission this morning. Help us to conduct an honest assessment, not only of our personal lives, but of our corporate life. And God, to be, to be jolted awake in this reminder of your identity and your mission and your purpose in the world. God, help us to, to know for certain whether, whether we are the sick who've been healed or whether we're the Pharisees standing on the outside judging. God, help us to know how to respond to who you are this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move from the astonished crowds of verse 12 into, the, into verse 13 we find Jesus doing what He's been doing since His baptism. He's preaching the Gospel. He's teaching. You see, Jesus continues in His mission of teaching the Gospel. He doesn't change His strategy. He sticks with the program. And the program, the background, verse 13 is important because it lets you know His call to followership always comes out of His teaching or His preaching of the Scriptures. Why would that be? Because the Scriptures rightly understood always lead us to see our deep need for Jesus. You, you can't get people to Jesus, you can't get people to understand their need for Jesus without the Bible. At some point, you got to understand who Jesus is in light of the Bible. There's much to be said for persistence in the basics, is there not? That's the moral of the story of the tortoise and the hare. The hare takes off on a sprint, but then he has to rest. Or then he chases down various paths of distraction, but the slow and steady tortoise just keeps moving down the assigned course and eventually wins the race. So it is with Jesus. He just keeps 
teaching and preaching the scriptures that point to him. Now, Jesus is no tortoise, to be sure. In Mark's gospel, he's a man of action. But the teaching of the gospel undergirds his ministry every single step of the way. And his call to discipleship flows out of his consistency in this mission. It's through the hearing of God's word that the Spirit prepares hearts to obey him when he says, follow me. And it's within this overall context of teaching that Jesus calls those that we may not expect. You see, Jesus is in the business of calling the seemingly unlikely, the socially undesirable, and those who recognize their need for His healing. And the same then is true for Jesus' church in the world. If we are the body of Christ, then our mission is likened to that of Christ and We should now be those who persist in the teaching of the Scriptures, of the Gospel. And as we persist in the teaching of the Gospel, there's three things we must do. We must expect Jesus to call the seemingly unlikely. Secondly, we must spend time with the socially undesirable. And finally, we must remember why Jesus came and those to whom He is sending us. We must expect, first, Jesus to call the seemingly unlikely. As Jesus is passing by, he sees, literally he beholds Levi. Now this this word is often used for seeing something good. Jesus sees a a sinning tax collector and he beholds him sitting at at the tax office and he calls him out of his cushy job and into Jesus' journey to the cross. Hey, why don't you stop living by extorting people And why don't you join me and walk to a Roman cross? That's where we're headed. As Achan writes, Levi counted the cost, took the risk, and followed Jesus. He gave up his lucrative business and all of his stuff, and there was no going back. Once more in Mark's Gospel, the call to follow Jesus includes a call to abandon ourselves. You can't follow Jesus and hang on to all your stuff and all yourself and all your dreams and passions and all that. You surrender all that to the gospel dream and what Jesus intends for your life and for His mission in the world. And again, Mark foreshadows for us the resurrection power that Jesus gives His disciples when we read that Levi got up. Do you see that in verse 14? It says he got up. Well, that's actually the word for raised up. It's the same word for resurrection. In other words, when God calls us out into followership, He's raising us up from a former life that was dead into a life that is alive to Christ and His mission. Now, I I don't know if I can explain to you this morning just how scandalous the call of Levi is, but it's far more scandalous than his call of the fishermen in chapter 1. Fishermen provided Pharisees, commoners, everybody in between. You know what fishermen did? They provided food for you to eat. People like fishermen. They might make fun of them, say they're blue collar, and they don't know very much other than how to cast a net, but they like fishermen. But you know who they didn't like? They didn't like tax collectors. Not much has changed. Tax co- fishermen put food on your table. Tax collectors take food off your table. Fishermen provided food to eat. But tax collectors, in the employment of the Roman government, were extorting people. The Roman system of taxation depended on graft and greed. It attracted enterprising individuals, Edward says, who were not averse to such means. As a result, the Pharisees 
maintained that just the touch of a tax collector rendered an entire house unclean. Tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people as traitors and abusers of their own people. They were a mafia-like organization and they were expelled from the synagogue. And who does Jesus call out of the many people in the crowds now to follow him but a tax collector, not a Pharisee, not a scribe, not a priest, but a tax collector. One considered most unfit for the kingdom of God becomes one of the first followers of God's king. Jesus turns the world upside down. As Aiken writes, Jesus saw not the wicked life of a tax collector and extortionist, but the changed life of a disciple, an evangelist, an apostle, and a gospel writer. The call of Levi, therefore, challenges us, North Roanoke Baptist Church. It challenges our preconceptions about Jesus and who He will call and whose life He can use. The message of verse 14 is that Jesus will call those we are least likely to expect and those we are least likely to accept. And when He does that, We must do what Jesus does. Because when Jesus gets started with one tax-collecting extortionist sinner, guess where He's going to take Jesus to? A whole crop of sinners. Do you know who sinners hang out with? They hang out with sinners. Do you know who lying, cheating, no good, down-in-the-earth, scallywag people hang out with? The same sorts of people. And so He calls the one into His service, and He's like, Hey, Jesus... I'm going to throw you a party. We know this because of Luke 5.29. It says that Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of, guess who? Tax collectors and other people. Meaning, the sort of the supporting network that allowed the extortionist industry of tax collecting to go. There's all sorts of heathen around this industry. And they were reclining at the table with them. You see, what happens in verse 15 is a picture of what I'm praying is going to happen in the Roanoke Valley through North Roanoke Baptist Church. That that God's going to give you the opportunity to intersect with the lives of some sinners, and not just some sinners, right? We're all sinners. But this this word for sinners, the way Jesus is using it, is like sinners. The real bad. And that Jesus would let us rub shoulders with sinners who would be called out into following Jesus, who would lead us back into a whole community of sinners who would be changed. Do you believe Jesus still does that? Do you believe Jesus can still do that? It's happening all around the world. There's no reason to believe that it can't happen again in the Roanoke Valley. And this, as this large, do you see verse 15, it says there were many of them. As this large band of sinners shares a meal with Jesus, what does He do? He calls and eats with them, extending forgiveness to all who would forgive them. By the end of verse 15, we see that many are following Him. They turn from padding their pockets at the expense of others to learning to live and to give their lives for the sake of others. It's an entire 180 in the mission of their life. But, as is often in the case, there are some who lurk in the shadows waiting to raise a question about Jesus. 
You see, it's one thing for Jesus to say last week that he has the authority to forgive sins, but now he's actually hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. How in the world could this man be from God? He's going to the worst of the worst in society, and he's eating with them. Surely he's not God's representative in the world. So the Pharisees thought. You see, Levi follows Jesus. Levi's tax collecting and associated, associated extortionist friends follow Jesus. Meanwhile, the scribes stay on the outside and ask Jesus' disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? We often think of the Pharisees as hypocritical because Jesus indeed exposes their hypocrisy. But you've got to understand, in the text, most people didn't see the Pharisees as hypocrites. Rather, they saw them as pure and holy people. In fact, Aiken reminds us that the Pharisees' fundamental goal was noble. It was to maintain a life of purity and obedience to God's law. Their mistake was thinking that in law-keeping, that it was going to change their heart. The hypocrisy was in their heart. And too often, we think because Jesus eats with sinners and chastises the Pharisees, that somehow Jesus is lowering the bar for us. That somehow he doesn't care that they were sinners. That somehow Jesus spends time with sinners because, well, he's endorsing it. He's saying sin's okay. It's just a normal part of life that Jesus has made acceptable. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. That is a terrible interpretation of this text. And it is a tragic mistake for one's soul. God's grace never excuses sin. Or makes it less offensive to God. God's grace takes sin and strips it of its power in your life. What does Jesus think of sin? He thinks it is so sick that killing it required His life on a cruel Roman cross to cure you. Jesus does not lower the bar. He raises it. And then He clears it for us. And He offers to make us new as we follow Him. And He runs into where sinners are. And He says, I can deliver you from the sickness of sin. Jesus is not criticizing true holiness. He's, crit he's criticizing hidden hypocrisy. And unfortunately, for many who have been relatively good and decent and respectable people for most of their lives, hanging out every Sunday in a church building with other good and decent and respectable people, we are at great risk of being like the Pharisees, of trusting in our moralism rather than in the Messiah, of trusting in our works rather than in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross to kill our sin and make us New. Billy Graham, who just turned 99 this week, once estimated that as many as 80% of the people seated in a pew in America on any given Sunday are like the Pharisees. 80%. Maintaining a good appearance. Putting the offering in the offering plate. Checking the box. Going to Sunday school. Bringing the quarterly putting on the suit and the tie and everything on the outside, but lost and unconverted and lacking a transformed heart. 80%. One of the surest tests 
of whether or not we understand our total dependence upon Christ for salvation is how we think about sinners. Particularly sinners we feel most justified in despising. I'll say that again. One of the surest tests of whether or not we understand our total need for Christ and His salvation is how we think of other sinners, particularly sinners we feel most justified in despising. The ones who make us consider shaking our heads like good moral Pharisees. Jesus goes to the people that our self-righteous selves want to write off. Jesus, where is Jesus going? He's going to homosexuals and illegal immigrants and the super poor and the super rich. He's going to CEOs and mailroom clerks. He's going to university professors and refugees and liberals and conservatives and moderates. He's going to atheists and Muslims. He's going to irresponsible people, lazy people, whiners, crude people, overpaid athletes. He's going to the foul mouth, to drunkards, abusers, users, pushers, people from uptown, downtown, Motown, no town. He is going to the people and to the places that you ride by, that you see on Fox News and CNN, and you want to shake your head and say, how could they do that? That's where Jesus is going. Danny Aiken asks it this way. Do we spend our time with persons who do not know Christ, whose lives may be offensive to us, and whose reputation among good people like us is an embarrassment and even a scandal? Do we love sinners? Do we care for sinners? Reach out to sinners and serve sinners. North Roanoke Baptist Church, I want to be a church that is organized to reach sinners. I I want you to go to your Sunday school classes right after this session and say, how is it that we can organize to reach sinners? How, when we have our Christmas party this December, are we going to have some people who have never darkened the door of a church who are sinners, how can we get them to come to our Christmas party and show them the love of Christ? When we have a Thanksgiving meal, perhaps not this year, but next year, what if half the people in there were sinners that we had invited and we had paid for their ticket and we sat them at our table and we said, we just wanted you to be here to let you know that we're thankful that you're a part of our community. We have to have opportunity to serve you a meal, and then I preach the gospel for 10 or 15 minutes, and who knows, maybe some sinners would get saved. We've got to think about the way we structure and do what we do. It's not about us. It's about the mission of Jesus in the world, and we do so much good stuff, but are we really leveraging it to reach sinners? Finally, we must remember why Jesus came and those to whom He is sending us. You can You can hear a sermon and you can get motivated for a week, but until you really understand why Jesus came and it gets into the core of who you are, it'll just be one more little program, one more little agenda, one more little thing I do for a while while I'm motivated, and then I'll drop it. The only way you're not going to drop the intentionality that characterizes the life of Jesus in reaching sinners is if you constantly remember, remember, remember why He came. And why He came shows us those to whom He is sending us. Why should we strive to reach sinners? Because that's why He came. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent Me, I also send you. And He is sending us to sinners to call them into leaving sin and following Jesus, just like He did in verse 15. If Jesus had only called Levi, 
and then hung out with his friends and called them, and that was it. We might be justified in settling into our comfortable lives and our comfortable families and our comfortable ministries without ever stepping out to engage sinners, but Jesus doesn't give us that luxury. Because the Pharisees ask the question, and he answers the question, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Because, he says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician. But those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The call of Levi and his friends is not unusual for Jesus. It is why he came. As Edwards writes, the call of a sinner is not an exception to Jesus' mission. It is typical of it. Jesus has come for people who admit that their sin has made them sick. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate, hate, hate admitting that I'm sick enough to need to go to the doctor. Hate it. There's just something about the sinful pride of our lives. You don't like to go to the doctor either, do you? There's just something about the sinful pride of our lives that leads us to believe that we can fix ourselves. It happens all the time. I'll be, you know, mucus coming out of my ears and my eyelids. Hey, why, have you taken some vitamin C? Maybe you just need some zinc. Have you tried an oil diffuser? Do you have a neti pot? How about wearing a sock on your head? May as well. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, when we think that we can find some other way other than Jesus the physician to be cured on the inside, here's what we're saying. On the inside, I'm not sick enough to need a doctor. I've got the resources necessary to do whatever's necessary to be well. Just give me some essential oils. Give me some vitamins and some OJ. And I will fix my basically okay self. But one thing you better not do, mister, is tell me to go to the doctor. Only those really sick people need to go to the doctor. And that's Jesus' point. He's come for really, really, really sick just how sick are we talking about? So sick that they're dead. Terminally ill. That's right, without Jesus, we're so spiritually sick that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1 And what the Pharisees needed to understand, and what we must understand this morning, is that everyone, everyone, everyone has the wretched terminal illness of sin, and there is only one doctor who can cure us. When you go to the doctor... I love it now. They've got the sick side and the well side. Had to take Elizabeth for a, a minor issue. She's not sick to the doctor the other day. And I started to walk in the sick side. And Elizabeth said, reminded me, you're, you're going in the wrong side. You've got to go in the well side. This is just a routine ditty. And you know what? That's what a lot of people want to do with Jesus. They want to come to Jesus on the well side. I just need a little shot, a little inoculation little checkup, maybe some vitamins. Look at my knee, look at my hangnail, look at my toenail. But I'm not, I mean, I'm not sick. I don't need to be radically transformed on the inside and given a new life. I'm not sick. 
everyone who truly follows Jesus has to come through the sick side of the doctor's office. In fact, that's the only door Jesus has. The only thing we bring to God is our sickness, and He's the one who brings all the healing. And then what do you do? What do you do when you really understand you were terminally ill and you walked through a sick door and you walked back out and you had life and you weren't dead anymore? What do you do? You just go home and turn on the TV, don't you? No, you don't do that. You go find other people who are terminally ill. I mean, when people have cancer and they got a type of cancer and somebody finds a cure, they start a whole foundation to fund it. Y'all need to, and they wear pink ribbons and they say to everybody, I found a way to cure a terminal illness. And what do we do when we walk through the door of Jesus' doctor's office? We go find people who have the same terminally ill disease. We don't suggest an oil diffuser, an herbal supplement, just going to church, getting some orange juice or a neti pot. We don't keep quiet. We go find as many people, no matter where they're from or what they believe or what they look like, and we find the same people with the same terminal illness, and we say to them, let me introduce you to my doctor friend before it's too late. Did you know we already have, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ already has the diagnosis and the cure for the number one problem of every person on the planet? It's not at the CDC, it's not at the EPA, it's not at the National Institutes of Health, it's none of those things. We're spending billions and billions and billions of dollars to cure things that aren't going to cure the problem of death. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has the diagnosis and the cure to the number one problem of people all over the world. And what are we doing with it? We're sitting on it. We're sitting on it. The reality is there's probably some here this morning who need to be cured by Jesus. There's churches filled with people who look the part but lack the transforming healing power of the gospel on the inside. Checking boxes, trying to cover up the cancer of their heart rather than running to the cure. And I want to urge you this morning, North Roanoke, If you look the part, but you're dead on the inside, it's time to stop pretending that you're well. It's time to move to the sick side of the office. Because those who are deathly sick are the ones who can be healed. You say to me, Pastor Daniel, I I don't know what side I'm on. I'm not sure I've ever really seen my sin as the Bible describes it, as an eternally deadly sickness that only Jesus can cure. How can I know? Here's how I'd answer that question. When you understand that you're sick, when you really understand how sick you are, you stop trying to make yourself better. You've been there in the hospital room when somebody finally gets the word that they're going to have to give up. They're out of options. When you understand that you are out of options, when you stop pretending that you are well, or that you just need a tweak or a little change, and then everything's going to be alright, when you get to that point, 
And you go to the doctor and you listen to what he says and you do exactly what he says and he says, if you'll follow me and lay your life down, that's where the cure is. What do you do when he says that? You lay your life down. And at that moment, he heals you and he cures you and he raises you to life. And he says, follow me on my mission of going right back to the same people who have the same sickness. What is the hope for sinners? The hope for sinners is that Jesus still still heals sin-sick people and sends them out to find more. Jesus is the doctor and He still makes house calls. And when He does, people get healed. There's really only two ways to respond to a message this morning. You can say that I know, that I know, that I know that I've been healed and I'm going to go find some sinners. Or you can say, I've been playing the game my whole life. And I'm tired of thinking that I can come to Jesus through the well side of the office. I need to come to Jesus today and say, I'm dead. Please heal me. However you need to respond as we sing, I pray that you will. Would you bow with me? Our Father and our God. Help us to respond to this text as Your Spirit leads us. For the glory of Christ, our King and our Healer, we ask it. Amen.